Keep, O oh, keep us, Savior dear, ever constant by thy side. Amen. When I was in college, every Sunday evening, there was a service called Growing in Grace that was held in the university chapel. And people came as they were. The, surf- the service was pretty simple. Um, it was pared down, a pared-down version of a Sunday morning liturgy. Most of it pe- took place in the round with people standing around the altar platform. Students and faculty members were often the preachers, and for music, there was usually an acoustic guitar and sometimes a fiddle. Now, I'd like to say I was a regular, but I was a sporadic, at best, attendee. And looking back, I can't really tell you much about who the speakers were or what they said, but something about growing in grace that I hope I never forget is something that our associate chaplain, Anwen, would tell us each and every week. She would say this right before the blessing and the dismissal. Remember who you are and whose you are, she'd say. Remember who you are and whose you are. Like many, college was a time when I was trying to figure out who I was. I was learning and experimenting and messing up and experiencing new joys. And some days I felt so certain, and other days, I just felt like I was questioning everything that I thought I knew. And amidst this tidal wave of so much new that college brings and just that time in young people's lives brings, Anwen sought to ground us in the reality that deep down at our core, we are children of God and we belong to God. There was so much in campus life that sought to give us tools that would help us build up our identity And there was so much that chipped away at it and threatened our sense of identity. I needed her words to remember who I am and whose I am, and I still need them today. Because in so many ways, our identities, they're not really a static thing. They can be influenced by a host of things, from what we do for a living, the relationships in our lives, births, deaths, disease, geography, the list goes on. And figuring out who we are extends well beyond our teens and our 20s. I'd venture to guess that for just about everybody in this room, we are trying to figure out who we are in some way right now. Maybe it's in a small way, or maybe there's something big in your life that is really shifting your sense of identity. And time and again, scripture calls us to remember that beyond all these external, external and all these experiential markers of identity, we do have a shared common identity. Just a few days ago, it was Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, and we were reminded of our shared mortality, the reality that we are all dust, and to dust we all will return. And last Sunday, we celebrated right around this font, the baptism of John and of Christopher, who were sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. And baptism, it affirms sacramentally, through these outward and these visible signs, something that is inward and spiritual, the grace that we are one in Christ. We are part of Christ's body. 
We are dust. We are beloved. We are gods. We are Christ's hands and feet in the world. And Lent, the season in the church year, its call, its invitation is for us to remember this, to return to this reality, and in doing so, be open to having our lives be remembered, be put back together again by God, and have our lives reoriented to Jesus. And so today, on this first Sunday in Lent, we get two of the most iconic stories from Scripture paired together. Jesus in the wilderness and the fall. The story of Adam and Eve and their fateful encounter with the serpent. And temptation is, of course, central in both of these stories. But I think so, too, are questions of identity. Adam, Eve, and Jesus are all tempted to mistrust that core identity of being God's beloved. For Adam and Eve, the serpent sows the seeds of mistrust by calling God's trustworthiness into question. He hints at there being more to the story than God is letting on, and that maybe he's keeping Adam and Eve in the dark to prevent them from being his rival by telling them not to eat from the tree. And notice that the serpent, he doesn't lie. Neither of them dies right after they eat the fruit. And as God will go on to acknowledge, they do become more like God with this new knowledge that they gain. The serpent gets Eve and Adam to lean into the temptation to be self-sufficient. And I think that's a temptation that we all face. They try, as David Luce writes, to fulfill the deep want and need that is at the very core of being human not through their relationship with God, but by seizing the fruit that's in front of them. These first humans, they created a wedge between themselves and God that was fueled by anxious mistrust. As they tried to establish themselves as being less dependent on God and more God-like in their own right. Now, our quest for self-sufficiency might not involve a fruit tree, but maybe we seek it through money, through the sense of security, or going after that elusive thing. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship that always seems just outside of our reach. For Jesus in the wilderness, the tempter also focuses on identity. Notice Satan's opening words in the first two temptations he puts before Jesus. If you are the son of God, it's like he's saying, are you sure you're God's son? Why not find out for certain? Turn the stone into bread or jump from the temple, and then you'll know. You won't have to doubt. You'll be certain on your own. That's going to be better. It's going to be easier. And this whole wondering and waiting, it can be over now. But Jesus resists and maintains his trust in God. Now, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness right after his baptism. The verses right before the gospel that we hear today, they tell Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. And this is how it ends. It says, A voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So while Jesus is famished in the desert and facing the tempter, 
he is grounding his identity in remembering whose he is, who it is that God has just reminded him that he is. He's God's son. He is the beloved. So he doesn't assert his power or identity on the tempter's timeline or even on his own. Much like the Israelites centuries before him who would wander in the desert for 40 years, that number 40 meant to evoke that story too, Jesus leaves the wilderness and is assured in his trust in God the Father and ready to inherit whatever mission or ministry lies before him. Now, speaking of temptation, I think it might be easy to cast Jesus as the good guy and the winner, the one we are supposed to emulate, and Adam and Eve as the losers, the ones we don't want to. And yes, of course, that is, that is true. But I think so too is the reality and the reminder that sometimes we need to remember that we are not Jesus. While we are God's beloved, we are not the beloved. We aren't the Son of God. And so while Jesus' time in the wilderness might seem like something we could never attain to, that's probably true, because we're not Jesus. But that doesn't mean we don't keep trying. The other thing to remember is that in the story of the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't make, him, make it about himself. He points continually to God, to God's trustworthiness and character. Even Jesus' words, they're not his own. He has been fasting and praying for a very long time. He's exhausted and worn out, and that's when the tempter comes. And Jesus' replies to each of his temptations, they're the words from Deuteronomy, words that are connecting his experience to the Israelites centuries before. So he's using not his own words, but he surrenders to the words of those who came before him. He trusts God to give him the words he needs in that moment. And he realizes that there's something going on that is bigger than that moment alone. Jesus, the one that we call our Savior, his victory over the tempter in the wilderness, it isn't some flex of spiritual superiority. It's surrender. It's total trust in God and knowing that he is God's beloved and trusting that that's enough. I wonder what surrender might look like for you this Lent. It's something I'm thinking about and asking myself. What's getting in the way of you remembering who you are, who you are at that deep core identity, and whose you are? I'll be the first to admit that remembering who I am and whose I am, it is much easier some days than others. I think there was a reason Anwin said that each and every week. And in my experience, trusting in God doesn't mean that I am suddenly and eternally fulfilled, that I don't have doubts. A life of faith certainly isn't a life that's absent of hardship or absent of pain. But perhaps it is the ability to tap into the strength of, strength of relationships, relationships with God and with one another, to sustain enough hope and courage to make it through the day. And then on our better days, we can be like the angels, ready to meet the weary and famished in our own midst who are experiencing wilderness. My prayer is that your Lent is a holy one and that you remember who you are and whose you are. Amen.